everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by Steph Voye. Barry Katzen is out tonight. Hey, Steph, how you doing? I'm okay, man, Danny. I have to say I'm a little nervous that Barry's not here. Let's make sure we don't completely muff this. Otherwise, we'll never hear the end of it. In the Ocean's Eleven version of like what roles we play on the podcast, like one person is the fast talker and there's like the demolitions guy and he's the like, I guess, Danny Ocean, whatever role he played. So yeah, I oh. think we may be in trouble. But uh, <laughs> that seems a little generous. Uh, there's also, if I remember correctly, a really old man character in Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that part of that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm so I'm I'm literally thrilled to introduce our guest host, Katie Whiskar, who's a general internist at Vancouver General Hospital. Hey, Katie, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. We uh, this are is excited to have you. Yeah, no, this is like I listen to a lot of medical podcasts, and you guys are like my favorite podcast to listen to because it just feels like I'm sitting in a morning report with very smart people. So I'm super thrilled to be here. Wait, there Check, are other, checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> there are other medical podcasts. I had no idea. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's just, just you guys. <laughs> so Daniel, uh, Danny came across a list. I don't even know where this list was from. Of some person posted on the internet, they're they're like top, you know, favorite medical podcasts, and we actually ranked on the list. We were like this person's fifteenth favorite podcast. Or oh something. yeah, for real. You guys yeah. are great. Yeah. So, but you, so have a, you do have a lot of competition. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's surprising to hear that we were anywhere on anyone's radar. <laughs> but now, obviously, my gut instinct is to say, "Well, let's see what we can do about that. Let's see if we can rise up this person's list." So yeah, let's, uh, let's figure let's that out, Danny. Bump number fourteen off that list. I, yeah, I mean, I'm I was also surprised that we were on anyone's radar. We're not even on everyone in my own family's radar. <laughs> so that was that was exciting. That was yeah. a little a tiny ego boost. Yeah. So All right, let's Katie, do we're gonna, yeah, we're going to turn it over to you. You hit it, and um, we're going to try our best without hamstrung by the absence of Barry Casson. You guys will do great. Um, all right. So this is a case that I saw early on in my residency. So I had to do quite a bit of digging through our lovely uh, provincial EMR system to come up with the details. Uh, so this is essentially a 60-year-old guy who presented with fevers, malaise, myalgias. Now, I'll back up, and I know, Danny, I think you like to get all the backstory on the patient before we dive into the the history, as do I. So this is, yeah, I'm, I'm the same, I'm the same. I like to, you know, frame things. So prior to all this, this was a pretty healthy guy. He had a history of hypertension, diet-controlled diabetes, a herniated disc, some polyps, and an appendectomy. Uh, he had no allergies, and his home medications prior to all this were hydrochlorothiazide, uh, candesartan, gabapentin for back pain, and then prior to, hosp- to my hospital admission, or the one where I met him, uh, colchicine and aspirin, which I will tell you more about. His social history was pretty unremarkable, drank one to two alcoholic drinks a week, never smoker, no drug use, uh, lived in suburbia, worked as a real estate agent, uh, and family history was only significant for a mother with lung cancer uh, in her 70s, as well as a father with colon cancer in his 70s. No- nothing else remarkable. The story here is a little bit protracted in that there were quite a few events before I met him. So this guy was essentially well up until about three months prior to his admission where he met myself and and the team at Vancouver General. Four months, so three months, I should say, prior to this, he went to Cuba uh, on holiday, staying at a resort. And while he was there, he began to experience episodic fevers, rigors, fatigue, uh, and shortness of breath, as well as a non-productive cough. He also was having a little bit of chest pain with this that got worse when he returned home uh, back to Vancouver. This constellation of symptoms led him to present to a peripheral hospital where he was found to have an elevated troponin at like 0.6, some diffuse ST elevations with with, uh, PR depression, and diagnosed with pericarditis, did have a cath, which showed non-significant coronary disease. Uh, So it started on some aspirin and colchicine uh, and sent home. His symptoms responded fairly well to this. He was well then for about a month and then had a return. Oh, and then went to Mexico uh, again for about a week. And while he was there, once again, started experiencing sort of fatigue, low-grade fevers, myalgias, essentially the same thing, some shortness of breath, non-productive cough. He went back to the same peripheral hospital where he had a CT scan of the chest that showed bilateral infiltrates, um, as well as sort of a standard workup. So he was diagnosed with a pneumonia. 
cultures didn't grow anything, but he was empirically treated with ceftriaxone, azithromycin, and Tamiflu and responded fairly well to this. During this admission, he was noted to have a mild increase in his liver function test, as well as some transient uh, sinus bradycardia. So some further workup was sent for that. Uh, But overall, he did quite well, was transitioned to oral antibiotics, and was sent home, at which point he was improved in afebrile. He then had one further, so this is now kind of admission T minus one month, one further sort of episode of these symptoms, low-grade fevers, malaise, myalgias, again went into this peripheral hospital, was diagnosed with a transient viral illness when sort of a cursory workup didn't turn up anything, and discharged home. He at this point went to his family doctor who discontinued his ACE inhibitor that he was on prior to all this, which did improve his non-productive cough quite a bit. So that is all the backstory before I met him. He then came into the hospital where I was working with a two-week history of daily fevers, drenching night sweats, and a 25-pound weight loss over the past several months. He was again complaining of some pleuritic chest pain, uh, this non-productive cough and shortness of breath on exertion. Uh, He had no active joints, but did describe sort of some vague arthralgias. There was no rash uh, that he had noted. No nausea, vomiting, no diarrhea, no changes in his bowel movements. Uh, He did have some mild headache when he had the fevers and mild sort of subjective neck tightness, but nothing really prominent. Uh, No urinary symptoms, no visual symptoms, a little bit of sort of on and off abdominal pain or flank pain when he had, uh, when the fevers were really bad. Uh, And otherwise he, the, the history otherwise is, as I've told you, there had been no other new medications other than the aspirin and colchicine recently no sick contacts that he knew have knew of, um, nothing else remarkable. Um, so maybe I'll stop there after that very long history and ask you guys if there's anything else you want to know before I move on to his initial exam. Steph, you want to go, you want to take this first? I have some thoughts too, but uh, you can go for it. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any, um, this is like too undifferentiated for me at this point to even hazard a guess as to the diagnosis, but I, I would say like how I'm at least thinking about it. You know, when someone spends any amount of time abroad and then comes back, it makes me think about obviously like, is this a sort of fever in the returning traveler, infectious disease workup that we're embarking on? But then, you know, so so I think that is in the back of my mind, but then it's come back three times after having sort of remitted. And, and so that's a bit weird. And I don't, I don't have a good handle on why that would be. Um, and now he's also presenting with these like more red flag symptoms. Like he's had, he's having drenching night sweats and 25 pounds of weight loss, which, which would be pretty unusual for an infectious disease. That's, that's only like, that's been going on for three months. So to me, this, this is like more likely going to be in the inflammatory or, or less likely malignant category, but obviously like this could also totally plausibly be an infectious problem that's I know that's really vague right now but that's that's kind of my preliminary thoughts what, what about you Danny yeah I, I think you're right like I, I think the um, piece that's that's kind of slapping us in the face is the travel seems like it is totally worth thinking of it through that lens but then also taking off that lens and just being like okay gentlemen with this constellation pretend he didn't travel so again like kind of doing both workups at the same time i think with with any traveler i always kind of wonder about the same questions not that i have like <laughs> i don't have a workup to follow up each of these things but <laughs> i always like wonder about like okay um any exposure to like fresh water um any special like uncooked meats or even cooked meats that are a bit unusual for you, bites or bug exposures, any new sexual contacts, um, because I I think about all those things when someone goes traveling. So I wonder about those. Um, The thing that really sticks out, like, you know, there's a lot of non-specificity of his symptoms, like, you know, the syndrome of perimyocarditis and the, you know, the fevers, chills, uh, sweats, all those things go together nicely. But the bradycardia um, if I heard you right, uh, mm-hmm. the human that, that, you know, I have a very short list for things that make you like feverish and sweaty, but also bradycardic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if that is a specific indicator of the disease. Like if, if we, you're right, like we shouldn't anchor to this too early, but if it is infectious, then like, is it typhoid or a different, you know, are there other infections that specifically do that? I would, I would really have to ask a smarter doctor. 
So, but I think you're right. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't just assume it's related to travel, even though I maybe, maybe even though you want to know some more things about the travel history. So I will, I will tell you. Perfect. So when he went to Cuba, he reports that he ate resort food but does think that tap water was used to sort of clean off the food. I think he like saw some of this happening in the kitchen, so unsure there. Uh, He did get some insect bites that he thought were mostly mosquitoes, but was unsure. He scraped his foot on a piece of coral while swimming, uh, and he petted some stray dogs, but received no bites from the dogs. Uh, So that was was at like admission minus three months. That was sort of when this all started. And then there was the trip to Mexico sort of a month later, and that that history was pretty benign. Stayed in a resort, bottled water, no animals, no insects to speak of. So, so you answered my question, and I... And, and now I you don't know what to do with it. it. I'm like, great, good, exactly what I wanted to know. Perfect. Uh, he scraped his foot on coral. I totally know what that means. Uh-huh. Um, okay, well, why don't I, I jump ahead and give you guys the physical exam then, when he first came in? Uh, so he was hemodynamically stable and, and continued to be so throughout his stay with a blood pressure of 118 over 72, a heart rate of 90, a rest rate of 20, satting 97 on two liters by nasal prongs with a temperature of 38.7. Uh, he looked in no acute distress, but somewhat uncomfortable uh, and mildly diaphoretic. There was no appreciable cervical axillary inguinal lymphadenopathy. Uh, head and neck exam revealed no meningismus, no photophobias, and his temporal arteries were non-tender. Cardiovascular exam revealed regular pulses, normal S1, S2, and, and normal JVP, no edema. Uh, respiratory exam revealed bibasilar crackles. The abdomen was soft and non-tender with possibly a positive Castells, kind of a question mark on the dictated physical exam. Uh, liver was thought to be normal in size and perhaps some kind of vague epigastric tenderness. And then musculoskeletal exam revealed no joint effusions. There were no rashes appreciated. And then I hate to say it, but this was early in my training before I did ultrasound. So I have no ultrasound exam to tell you about. So anything else you would like to know on physical exam? It's a pretty unhelpful physical exam. Yeah, mostly, um, yeah. I mean, so is he, was he hypoxic or was like, did anyone he was. measure? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. sort of satting like 88 to 90 on room air. But I will say throughout his exam, he was usually not hypoxic, um, but he did have moments where he needed a liter or two of oxygen. So the exam reveals basically fever and hypoxemia. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And that question about the castells that we're going to have. Yes. Maybe. 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 So no, yeah, no swollen lymph nodes. No. Uh, And the heart rate isn't low at this point. No, at this point he is borderline tachycardic. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. What now? Okay. Well, you have some initial lab investigations um, sent sort of by the emergency physician who saw him first. So he has a white count of 10 with neutrophils of 8.4. Lymphocytes are slightly low at 0.6 and eosinophils are normal. He's anemic with a hemoglobin of 99. Mm. uh, Normocytic. MCV is 87. Platelets are 432. INR and PTT are up at 1.4 and 39, respectively. His electrolyte profile shows a sodium of 131, a potassium of 4.2, normal chloride and bicarb, a creatinine of 120 from a baseline of 80. His lactate is normal at 1.2. His glucose is normal. Uh, His liver enzyme profile shows uh, a mildly elevated ALT at 123. AST is normal at 23. ALP and GGT are both a bit up at 144 and 251, respectively. Bilirubin is normal at 23. LDH is normal at 110. CK is normal. Lipase is normal. His CRP is 164. uh, And his troponin is negative. Urinalysis is benign. And extended lights are normal. That was kind of the initial. That was what you had initially. So I guess I'll I'll put it to you guys now. What what would you do with him? (laughs) What do you think is going on? He has like generally sick person labs. You know, yeah, it's like, a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, it's just not, but it's it's not, it's not. Um, Non-specific nothing, sick person. There's, yeah, there's nothing here to really grab onto. I, I mean, I think most, so he has a CRP that's elevated and it's not surprising at all. And so I don't, I don't know what to do with that. He's got this like mixed liver enzyme elevation pattern, which I don't know what to do with. Um, the creatinine is up, but I don't think like, I don't think that the kidney is going to give us a clue here probably like if i don't know 
maybe I'm wrong, but the hemoglobin, I think we can at least think about, like if we could prove, for example, that he has hemolysis, then maybe we can talk about processes that cause hemolysis and that'll give us a window into what else is going on with him. I would say that of the labs I just heard, I, I would bet that the hemoglobin is the most promising and the creatinine second most promising. Can I ask you, what do you think about the elevated INRPTT? How does that work into like your general sick person labs sort of deal? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, I mean, his liver is not, not super. Um, and I don't know what if he's, if he's been eating and drinking properly. 1.4, it's like, yeah, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. I think it's, 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 to me, it's probably not the the diagnostic clue that's going to crack this thing open. Do you think? Do you think the money's in there somehow? Mm, no, I don't. But uh, I, I don't have anything better. I'm I, interested in the lungs totally. the, and the anemia right now because uh, I have a pretty good grip on those things and and the weight loss, obviously. Um, but in terms of the th- yeah, oh boy, this is not that straightforward. No, no, it's uh, not. <laughs> it's, you know, Danny, at some point, someone is going to bring us an easy case. <laughs> I know yeah, what's going to happen. You know, I point. was going to show up with just this Eurosepsis I had last week, but I <laughs> thought we, it would we, be and, really short. <laughs> and we just had to figure out how to discharge the patient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that would be the tricky part. That takes three weeks. Yeah. Um, maybe we do like a, a side podcast where we do like quick, quick cases with uh, <laughs> Steph and Dan. And it's um, someone's like, patient presents with shortness of breath. And we're like, was it pneumonia? And they're like, it was. And like, that's it. And like, roll, roll credits. <laughs> we'll do something like that. But so I guess- where, where are you starting? You know, we talk about sometimes like the key log, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a log jam and there's like one, you know, the log, like people who used to run the rivers and stuff, they, they would identify the one key log that would sort of unlock the whole thing. Or like there's some salient feature to the case where you're going to start some, some first grip. Like if you're bouldering, the first thing you're going to grab onto is is X. What, right. what do you What do you think, Danny? Like to me, it's the the weight loss. Even you know, there's like the list of things that cause weight loss is what like a million items long. Yeah. For me, the hemoglobin. If like for example, if like let's hope that there's hemolysis here, that would be amazing. <laughs> um, then come on, baby. <laughs> then Show me hemolysis. That'll give us a place to start. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I did tell you that his bilirubin and LDH were normal. Eh, it doesn't mean, I mean, it means he's not actively hemolyzing right now, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't mean that he hasn't been. And I would still, you know, mm-hmm. like I'd want to know his Coombs result and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the lungs, the weight loss, the kidney and the hemoglobin is kind of, I'd attack all four of those at the same time and then see what, what they reveal. And then the splenomegaly as well that you mentioned, Danny. Yeah, I, I, I think I may kind of do a, a similarly like non non-focused workup just yet like there's there's a lot that needs to be investigated in their own right you know i think i'd follow up this this uh drop in his kidney function like of course and and kitty you may have said it but like i'd want that urinalysis like obviously if like protein and blood then i'm like woo, we're dealing with something that like maybe i have some idea what it could be and if not then we're kind of back to square one yeah I, i think i would kind of like expand the workups for each organ and um, the, the, as it comes back. And you mentioned this already, Danny, but the pericarditis, I think, is also potentially a big clue. Like mm-hmm. like when, for cases like this that are really undifferentiated, and, and really, honestly, the cases that I see admitted to the hospital, cases like this represent, honestly, less than 10%, probably. And so yes, what, yeah. I'll, what I'll do when I see cases like this, maybe this is less than 5%, what I'll do is is I will gather all this information and, and as you're describing, Danny, I would start like kind of a shotgun workup for a number of these things at the same time, working up the anemia and the kidney injury and the liver enzyme elevation and the splenomegaly and all that. And I would start all that going. And then as stuff is coming back and new thoughts begin to percolate, I would just be like entering those into UpToDate and Google and kind of seeing where, where the, the Venn diagrams of these individual elements start to overlap. Yeah, totally. That's, that's honestly in the first couple of days of an admission like this, that's what I'm doing kind of repeatedly. Three, four times a day, I'm going back to the computer and saying, okay, well, what about this? And what about that? And 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 usually I'll, I'll return to talk to the patient a couple of times within those first few days and clarify this thing or that thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's kind of honestly how I'm getting this ball rolling. Yeah. And I, I think from like the fever and nurturing traveler perspective, like we've talked about this before, but 
you know, you, you always, as a non-infectious diseases specialist, I always have to go on to the CDC or, or some kind of like WHO website to find out like, what are the endemic bugs there? Like they won't be things that I know a, a ton about. It's not possible. Um, you know, um, so I, I would start there as well. Like these are things that I'm doing in parallel while, while we're waiting for things to come back. I'm kind of hoping that, you know, his cultures come back and it's something nice and nice and treatable and wraps it all up and it's salmonella or something. And we go, okay, like that, that's our, that doesn't, that answers why he's feeling sick. It doesn't answer necessarily how he got it, but that's our window into like finding a source. So ideal, like that's what I'm, I'm begging comes back on some of our basic <laughs> investigations yeah. so that me and my team of residents don't have to sit around staring at each other like chumps. So um, I think, I think time is going to be my friend here. Yeah. Would you would you call infectious disease at this point? I'm not sure that I have like quite enough. I, 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 like I, I, you know what? I probably would, but I would also recognize that like I have not done everything that I can do as an internist. Mm. So like I wouldn't be surprised. Like we'll, we'll hear from Steph, but I wouldn't be surprised if a better generalist is like can take a couple of days before they call. Um, he is not so sick that I think he needs infectious diseases tonight, mm -hmm. but, but I am going to keep a very close eye on him. Um, he's already hypoxic, so I don't want to miss in terms of whatever general therapies we're going to give him. So I, I, I would have a very low threshold, whether it's like right now, tomorrow, I, I think depends on how he trends in front of me. And um, yeah, so low threshold, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what would fair. You I don't think I'd call on day one, but, um, you know, the, like we're, yeah, he, he, he started this travel three months ago, mm -hmm. you know? So, so like, we're not talking about malaria and dengue here, you know, like they, those should have run their course by now mm -hmm. in all likelihood. And then the weird sort of arthropod born infections that you pick up when you're traveling again, like, yeah, there's just something here that doesn't quite fit for me for those. Cause it's, it's three months of a history of this. So it's got um, a relapse remit pattern yeah, to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I'd, I'd have a good crack at it myself, uh, probably for a couple of days, as long as he remains stable. And then, and then if I'm not making any headway, then yeah, I, my threshold to consult is low in general it, when I'm lost, you know, I'm not consulting the nephrologist for every kidney injury but when I'm lost. And when I think, my own ignorance might be negatively impacting the patient's journey in the hospital. And then I call. Well said. Would you order any imaging and what would you like up front? Just x-ray and an uh, abdominal ultrasound. Okay. Excellent. And would you start him on any therapy empirically? Um, no, I mean, so, so I've, I've traveled, I've, I've worked and traveled kind of all over the place practicing medicine. And, and <laughs> if I, you know, if there's this like lingering question within 48 hours from now that this could be some weird arthropod, arth arthropod born infection, I'm going to give him doxycycline. <laughs> but but uh, for right now, no, I'm not doing anything empirically. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I don't think he like, he hits our like severe sepsis kind of level to say like, this is someone who like will like we're we're allowing mortality rates to rise if we don't start the antibiotics just yet like we can wait and yeah. and um, see what comes back and uh, i don't want to kind of poison the diagnostic well with uh, random antibiotics if um if, if i am going to call infectious diseases uh part of my question to them is like if we're going to start something like what what should we start without being overly broad or overly specific like that's part of that consult for for me Danny's being passive aggressive here. What he's trying to remind the audience is if you're going to call rheumatology, don't start the patient on prednisone first. <laughs> yeah. Noted. Um, no, I think, I think that make, I think you make a very good point. And I think that um, that is your experience speaking about feeling comfortable, not starting antibiotics in a case that may be infectious. Um, so I think what, what happened in this gentleman is he was seen by residents overnight and with a fever and a hypoxia, somewhat understandably, he was started on um, sort of standard pneumonia therapy. I think he was put on Piptazo overnight. Yeah. No, no, uh, like, I don't think there's anything crazy about that at all. Yeah. Totally. It, it's reasonable. It's totally reasonable. Yeah. So aside from that, in terms of some of the initial workup that was sent, so he was pan-cultured, um, blood, urine, stool, Restplex for influenza. This was not this year, so this was not COVID. Uh, Hep and HIV were sent. Uh, C. diff. 
his stool studies for leukocytes, ONP, malaria was done, uh, all negative. Uh, he did have a, a chest X-ray that just showed maybe some bibasilar atelectasis or bibasilar consolidations rather. And he actually had a CT chest done on his first day of admission uh, for PE with the hypoxia, which showed no PE, no lymphadenopathy, trace effusions, and bilateral lower lobe atelectasis. He did have an abdominal ultrasound as requested, uh, which showed a normal gallbladder, normal commnobile duct, fatty liver, a stable 6 centimeters, or a 0.6 centimeter cyst that had been seen a couple of years ago, uh, no evidence of abscess, and a normal pancreas. And the spleen? Uh, no comment on the spleen. Really? Huh. In, in the report. Yeah. He has a spleen though, right? He does have a spleen. <laughs> All right. Good question. Um, Good one, Danny. It's just, just, no, just noted as normal. Uh, almost almost cracked the case there yeah i know that that would have been it um other things that were sent up front he had a basic rheumatologic workup that was done uh ana rheumatoid factor c3 c4 and ancas were done and were all negative he had an anemia workup um so he had a peripheral smear that just showed reactive changes his dat was negative uh, his SPEP and UPEP and serum-free light chains were negative. His ferritin was uh, 1,100. Uh, fibrinogen was up at 7.7. Uh, and his serum immunoglobulins were done. The IgG was slightly up at 19.6. That uh, EBV and CV, CMV were also done and were negative, as was a monospot and a streptolysin uh, was negative. That was kind of the initial workup. Uh, the infectious side count. Uh, his retics were inappropriately normal. Yeah. Okay. Like I mean, the guy's bone marrow must have shut off some time ago mm-hmm. to have a hemoglobin of ninety nine. He's mm-hmm. been sick for three months, so he's just yeah. He's he's, he's like sick. generally sick, but not he's, specifically sick. Yes. At this point, so I kind of af- as you say, after those sort of initial tests were done, very reasonably, the ID service was consulted. They suggested a few other things. They suggested a repeat HIV, hepatitis C test, syphilis, Lyme, rickettsia. Uh, they talked about a bone marrow biopsy given the fevers and the anemias. Uh, and they also suggested imaging the abdomen as well as an echocardiogram. I don't know if you guys think those are reasonable things at this point. They're doing like classic fever of unknown origin uh, stuff. Essentially. So, yeah. That used to be a thing, bone marrow biopsies. Like, I'm not that old, but I was, I'm old enough to know that in my residency, I marrowed a lot of people for unexplained fevers. It's not really routinely done anymore, but yeah, it used to be pretty common. Um, So they were asking for, you you had said repeat abdominal imaging, I guess, because we had an ultrasound of the abdomen, but not Mm -hmm. a contrast CT of the abdomen. So we've not excluded um, abscess. We've not, we haven't uh, really had that look. So I think that's a, that's a very reasonable investigation it's kind of like they're looking for something to sample which is you know okay so katie i don't know if you've heard all of these shows but but what what is the rate that we end up getting tissue in in these cases danny it's got to be like 90 percent. a lot yeah, yeah. In, in cases where i don't present yeah pretty high <laughs> yeah but i like to leave a little gray in there so that no one ever comes away <laughs> no one ever truly knows the answer yeah so that no one's that happy yeah, we need something to drain or something to cut or something yeah. to, yeah. Um, I, the other thing that happened sort of within the first week or so of his stay is he actually spent one day uh, in the high acuity unit, sent down with increasing hypoxia. He spent about 24 hours on BiPAP. It was attributed to sort of worsening adelectasis and turned around very quickly on BiPAP, uh, mm-hmm. got sort of broadened antibiotics and then was sent back upstairs. What's, what's up with that? Like, why does this guy have bilateral atelectasis? Great What's question. It's a great question. So, so like, like for like, so, so, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is going to turn out to be relevant, but like, are his diaphragms working properly? And is that somehow related to, to what's going on here? But like, he's not old. He's 60 years old, previously healthy. Why would he have bilateral atelectasis? Doesn't make any sense. Katie, do we have any idea of like, do we have any like fever journaling? Like, do we know what time of day he's having the fevers or if there's well intervals or if it's just kind of fevering away all day? And mm. has that, has that bradycardia that was mentioned, has that come back? Because, mm. yeah. because we're, we are not picking up other nice, easy clues. And um, I, I, I wonder if that would narrow things at all for us. 
totally good questions. Uh, the bradycardia has not recurred. He continues to be like his heart rate varies between 80 and 100, depending on whether or not he's febrile. His fevers, as noted in hospital, seem to happen typically at night. He would have patterns of sort of two or three days of bad fevers up to 40 degrees, and then they would get a bit better. Sometimes he'd ha- he would have a day, maybe two without fever, and then they would recur. Uh, when his lab parameters were repeated, he would have this pattern of his platelets going up, his ferritin going up, his CRP going up during times of worsening fever. And these would then trend downwards as he became a bit more well for a few days. As may be predicted, he like frequently got started on, on antibiotics overnight by the covering resident um, until about two weeks into his hospital stay when it was like written in Sharpie across the front of the chart please do not start on antibiotics overnight for fever. Wow. This, this, this has a, certainly has a flavor of another case that not only have we done on the podcast, but me and Steph, uh, it, Steph was my staff when, when I was a, I think I was a senior. I think Actually, I remember no, listening to that episode. I have lived through this case. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. like, this, so this man has a T-cell lymphoma. Boom, <laughs> case closed. Yeah, boom. All right, good I night, you another one. I told you, you saw it in your clinic last week. Um, okay, so at this point, so ID wants a CT abdo and an, an echo and a bone marrow biopsy. Is there anything else that you guys would like at this point? We're now like a couple of weeks into his stay. Jeez. I, yeah, well. I, I wonder, it's like, crazy. so he, he came in with some headaches, but no meningismus, so no one's mm-hmm. really worried about mm-hmm. um, any meningitis, so probably very low yield to do an LP. Just thinking of other, like, sources, I think we we asked for uh, urinalysis, and I'm sure that was, like, mm. urinalysis was, was, was bland. Bland. Um, just not a lot of other human fluids to sample here. And there's no running out of fluids. anywhere to biopsy. There's no, well, you've only had a CT chest so far. Uh, but nothing on that and nothing on physical exam. Yeah. So I think the CT abdo pelvis is kind of now part of my fever of unknown origin workup. Um, he is 60 years old, you said. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You had actually mentioned some of like the giant cell arteritis stuff earlier on to to let us know like it had been considered. It mm-hmm. is on the list for fever of unknown origin, and I put mm-hmm. it way down on the list because mm-hmm. there's a million things to come first. And this guy has like other features that point us away from that. I'm not getting the flavor of an autoimmune disease per se, um, but that's just because of the strong overlap with infectious diseases and yeah. other like fever causing things. So I, uh, I, I feel like I'm no closer and I'm irritable. I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm pouting. I'm sorry to be so upsetting. Um, well, I'll give you some more information then. So the CT abdo was done, which revealed borderline splenomegaly at oh, six, 16 centimeters, uh, a single mildly enlarged portocaval node at 1.5 centimeters. And then they commented on multiple smaller paraaortic and mesenteric nodes, but these were not pathologically enlarged and looked normal uh, in appearance. There were some pancreatic calcifications. There was trace pelvic free fluid and moderate lower lobe atelectasis. His echocardiogram, a TTE, uh, was normal. Normal biventricular function, no vegetation seen. Uh, and his bone marrow biopsy revealed hypercellular marrow with panhyperplasia, suspected reactive. Several small granulomas, though TB and fungal stains were negative. No evidence of a lymphoproliferative disorder. Uh, quote, occasional hemophagocytosis, but not consistent with HLH, according to the reading. And flow cytometry uh, showed no evidence of B or T cell lymphoproliferative disease. Uh, Hematology was actually consulted at at this point, obviously. Um, They they were also looking for nodes to biopsy, um, but they did not... did not have anything really to go for at this time uh, as the single enlarged node on the CT abdo was totally inaccessible. So they thought that pursuing a lymph node biopsy of a, a normal appearing node on imaging would be very low yield. So they did not suggest this. Uh, otherwise, at this time, ID continued to be involved and sent a whack load of serology for interesting infectious diseases that I had never heard of, uh, that you guys may have heard of. Uh, but you mentioned salmonella earlier. Uh, that was sent and was negative. Uh, dengue was done, uh, chikungunya, leishmaniasis, entamoeba, mycoplasma, leptospirosis, histoblasto, coccidiomycosis, uh, all negative. 
yeah, I'm being really unsatisfying. I'm sorry. Uh, where, where would you go from here? What is, what is next? Cause really this is, I mean, as, as this was playing out, as we were looking after him, this was very much an example of a case where you're doing things in, in layers and in stages. Um, cause obviously every fever doesn't need, you know, a bone marrow biopsy and, you know, lichenosis serology, but it seemed to be a case where we just kept moving on to sort of, okay, what is the next round of tests that are reasonable to do for this gentleman? Yeah. Granulomas, eh? Oi, like that. Mm. <laughs> We're in trouble. Um, I, I, I have a couple like other tests on the list for fever of unknown origin that mm-hmm. have poor or, or not poor, but like low diagnostic yield. So um, in, in, in thinking about this previously and other patients like blind liver biopsy is on the list and we have found granulomas in one place. So if this is like a weird sarcoid, then, you, you know, the liver may be an accessible biopsy place to confirm sarcoid. Uh, or something else. So blind liver biopsy, temporal artery biopsy, Dopplers of the legs to make sure that they don't have uh, some kind of clots. PET scan, if you are have a legitimate worry about a lymphoproliferative disorder, you can access in BC, but you got to beg. You got to beg hard. So those are just like some tests that are on my, on my floating around. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm not sure that it, like one is the right one to deploy at this exact moment. But maybe granulomas is a useful feature here. What does that mean to you, Steph? I used to think that like granulomas disease was like it was going to crack the case open all the time. Yeah, you know, because I only knew like of three granulomas, <laughs> three granulomatous diseases. What you mean? There's more. Yeah, and and you know, granulomas. Uh, the differential diagnosis is like it's got fifty things on it, and so. I'm no no longer as psyched when I hear about granulomas. For me, there's still some things like, you know, there's there's these little historical things. And I don't know if these are just red herrings, but I still want to know. I know I realize now I sound like Barry, but I need to un- have an explanation for the for the atelectasis. Like, could we just test this guy's diaphragmatic strength? Like, can we just do that while he's here? Because if there's like a neurological problem here, like a diaphragmatic nerve paralysis of some kind, then I would like to know about that. There's this business of him having scraped his foot on the bottom of the ocean or whatever. And and so like, I think mycobacterium marinum is not common. Like it's it's not even, it's not common here. It's not common there. It's not common anywhere, but it is a granulomatous disease. It does cause prolonged protracted fevers. And if if the infection is systemic, it can cause weight loss. And then there's things like arthropod things that I didn't actually hear were tested like brucella and tularemia. And those can cause granulomas. They can also cause protracted fever syndromes. Um, they can cause anemia. So I'm just, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, you know, and, and I also want to know, uh, I guess after three months, if this was early HIV, he would have a seroconversion already at three months. So they, they like did repeat the test a, a couple yeah, of times, you yeah. Just get a CD4 count anyway, but yeah. I mean, sarcoid, what? Like, boy, oh boy, that's pretty rough sarcoid. Um, <laughs> so, to, have, so- to have basically no, like, <laughs> parenchymal disease and no adenopathy. Yeah. Ugh, yikes. So rheumatology any- was, was consulted for that question precisely. Like, is this sarcoid with the bone marrow biopsy features? And, and their thoughts were kind of very similar to yours. They thought this was like highly unusual in the absence of any classic features. And they said that they, they essentially said, go look for other things, like call us back if you find nothing. But they, they thought that something infectious or less likely malignant was more likely in this context. Hmm. He's and also you know these what? colon polyps remotely mm-hmm. and, and his father died or, or colon cancer or something. I, you know, I want to know that the colon has been like really well tended to like as part of this workup that we have either some imaging or a, or a virtual colonoscopy or something. It's just something to know that there's not a, an invasive problem in the colon. Sometimes those can spread even without there being a large tumor in the colon. Mm. Interesting. I, I, I was just going to say, I, I was just going to say like to, to I, I, I really did throw out sarcoid because again, like similar to you, Steph, like I don't have that gigantic a list of things that like I'm aware of granulomas as, a common feature in many, like at like it's the product of inflammation of various types. But the granulomatous diseases that are on my list, like I toss it out because sarcoid is on that list. Um, it, 
to to that end, maybe if I was the consultant here and I was like, okay, like sarcoidosis can cause pericardial disease, it can cause arthralgias, it can cause weight loss and fevers, it does cause granulomas, it can cause conduction blocks, so mm-hmm. could explain the early bradycardia, it can cause headache through the mechanism of leptomeningeal disease. So like we, we could com- reverse compose a story. Um, I still think it's very unlikely, but I think if I'm hunting for sarcoid, I would do an MRI of the head to see if there was any leptomeningeal enhancement. And we go, bing, like there's another, not my first choice, another biopsy site if we need it. If we can't solve this any other way, then then that's tissue um, that, that can potentially be accessed. So I would add that to my list because now I would spare no expense in my my workup. We're in we're into very sinister territory, right? He's not just bacteremic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is something weird. It's something hard to capture. So mm-hmm. I, that was also uh, something that was on my mind. Mm. Other than the um, other infectious disease workup, um, so Steph mentioned like brucella tularemia, Q fever, uh, and those were all done in negative. Are there any other lab tests you guys would want? Anything else that you think would be helpful here before I tell you about kind of what the next set of imaging and things they did are. And the bone marrow had like acid fast staining and all that. All negative. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would sheepishly send an ACE level and. Uh, yeah. It was sent. It was sent. <laughs> it was normal. Yeah. And his colon, we'd, I mean, he's had a CT abdomen, but not a dedicated colon study of any kind. No, not yet. Yeah. And no, I'm sure no one else cares about his diaphragm, but I do. And you do, you do. And I'm, I'm sorry, nobody, no, okay. nobody else at this juncture was as interested in the diaphragms as you. But I will tell you what they, what they did next. Um, so the PET scan uh, that Danny mentioned was done and was normal, as was a white blood cell wow. scan That's was incredible. done and was normal. As I said, rheumatology was involved for the query sarcoid question. Uh, hematology, as I said, had been involved. Nephrology became involved. There was actually the question posed to them was, could this be acute kidney injury secondary to sarcoid, uh, which they thought was unlikely. And they pointed the finger at his recent CT scan with contrast and pre-renal injury, et cetera, et cetera. Further lab work was sent. So there was the ACE level, the calcium, IgG4 level was done. He did have a, a liver workup given that his liver enzymes continued to be sort of mildly, unexcitingly elevated. So his uh, anti-mitochondrial antibody, anti-smooth muscle, anti-LKM1, ceruloplasmin, alpha-1 antitrypsin, AFP, TTG, uh, all negative. Antiphospholipid antibodies were done. A- ADM cortisol was done and was negative. Ferritin peaked at about 2,000. And a soluble IL-2 was actually done, which was quite elevated at 4,800. The upper limit of normal there is 870. But hematology, well, then, then that raised the annoying question of HLH, but hematology thought that was less likely. And, and we already have the more, as far as I understand it, like we have kind of the test. We have, we have the a bone marrow biopsy that does yeah. not show that that uh, hemophagocytosis is like the main feature and is often seen in sick people from various causes in lower levels. Correct. So I, I think I would, I would probably like shrug at the IL-2 level uh, based on that. Yeah. Uh, and then, so we, we have our first couple bits of tissue here also that, that they went hunting for, uh, temporal artery biopsy was actually done despite the lack of any, uh, ophthalmic features or visual features, uh, which was negative and didn't show any giant cell arteritis. And then a duodenal biopsy was done for Whipple's. Oh my God. Which I thought that Dr. Casson would be so excited about. Oh, if this turns out to be Whipple's, we can never publish this episode, Danny. Yeah. Barry we're, would we're be bearing, furious. We're burying this deep in our archives that we not, definitely have. <laughs> it was not Whipple's. It was negative. Oh, thank God. Thank <laughs> God. <laughs> but, I, but I figured he, that he would ask for it if he was here. Oh, for he sure. Would, he would. Um, yeah. Would have been the second thing he asked for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. After, after the blood C- CBC. Yeah, CBC yeah. and uh, Whipple's. <laughs> Um, Optho was also asked to come examine the patient for query evidence of sarcoid. Um, That's smart. Yeah, but they, they did not think there was any evidence there. Wow, the Anyone team was really, the really thinking about sarcoid. The team was very much thinking about, about sarcoid, yes. Because at, because at this point, he's now been in almost a month. I mean, yeah. his hospital stay in total ended up being six weeks of this same these same fevers, 
always accompanied by sort of malaise, myalgias, feeling awful. Like I would go in there every day and round on him and he just, he looked awful and he felt crummy and he didn't want to eat. And we just kept coming back to him without any answers. So we kept digging. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking to see the other things that you guys wanted. So as I said, stuff diaphragms, unfortunately, were not, nobody tested his diaphragms. Nobody did a colonoscopy. Danny had mentioned an MR of the head. Uh, where is it? Oh, that no one did, but they did do an MR of the heart looking for oh, yeah. cardiac sarcoid, uh, yeah. which was unremarkable. Was the pericardium normal? Yes. Damn. Uh, respirology was also involved uh, to bronch for either either a lymph node for an EBUS that they said they were unable to do as the nodes were too small, but they did a standard bronch and this kind of for all this, the usual suspects, cultures, fungal, et cetera. And that was all negative. Did you ask them to just reinflate his lungs while they're in there? Yeah. Just give him a little bit of peep, uh, throw on a BVM and just a couple breaths. Yeah. Other things that were done at this point and we're reaching kind of the end of the rope. So a skin biopsy was done by derm for intravascular lymphoma. That was negative. He had no rash. He had no rash. It's random random skin biopsy. This guy's getting a splenectomy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Genetics were sent for familiar familial Mediterranean fever. Oh my god! And a liver biopsy, a random liver biopsy was done. Yes, the liver biopsy. The liver biopsy that Danny wanted. So at at this point, with with the genetics for FMF. Uh, the skin biopsy and the random liver biopsy pending, he was discharged home. Because at this point, this guy had been in hospital for six weeks, essentially feeling crummy, but not but not deathly ill the whole time, as we had poked him and prodded him and drawn blood, only to come up with no answers. So after sort of long discussions with the team, him and his wife very appropriately decided that he would go home to continue um, symptomatic therapy at home and have very close follow-up with one of our extremely smart general internists. Oh, and I should mention that during the course of this hospital stay, he was also tried for a period off all of his medications, including the Tylenol, as there was a thought for a while that maybe this could be a drug fever from the Tylenol itself that was being used for his fevers. I wonder if anyone, like, because if you're sending for for FMF, which is like a very reasonable thought, did anyone just try him empirically on colchicine? Because we try people empirically on PRED a lot, and colchicine is, generally speaking, a way less toxic medication. So well, I'm, he came I'm in on colchicine, didn't he? He came in on oh, colchicine. Right. Oh, so silly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah. So so that, that maybe should have been something to let us know that that was less likely, given that he was on colchicine and still having these fevers. Does he have an ethnic background that would support FMF? No. Yeah. Uh, kind of northern Europe, northeastern European. And is genetics going to work him up for the rest, like traps and hyper IgD and all that stuff? Uh, wasn't discussed at the time, so I don't actually know if that was if that was going to be done in addition. But also started so suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, like FMF or traps or whatever. It doesn't start like one day to the next. I, I certainly have yeah, not yeah. like seen it or I'm not aware of it in the form of like, you never, never, ever had it ever. And now you have it all the time. (laughs) I haven't, I haven't like you never had it. And now you have it every single day of your life all the time. Like that, that doesn't fit that pattern for me. So I do put, we'll, we'll see what you say, but I, I, I put my money that that liver biopsy is more helpful in the Mm -hmm. context of granulomatous disease than the FMF. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I am always ready to eat my words. Yeah. Okay. So, so Danny's money's on the liver biopsy. Steph, if you, you've sent these guys home and you're going to see him in the clinic, what do you think is most likely at this point, given the exhaustive workup? And I will say I was the resident who dictated his discharge summary, and it probably took me three hours <laughs> to comb through resident. to comb through everything that had been done to this poor gentleman while in hospital. Yeah. Um... I mean, some of the some of the serologies and cultures and stuff that were drawn, maybe they take a long time to come back, and maybe there's something in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can tell you what was pending at the time of discharge. Still, uh, random liver biopsy, genetic testing. Oh, and results from the bronch were the only things that were pending. Everything else was back. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my 25 pounds of weight loss, recurrent fevers now maybe getting worse. Yeah, I don't know. Like like a, a really indolent infection, like a mycobacterial infection is on my mm-hmm. list. Mm-hmm. That's smart. 
if this was salmonella, we should have found it by now. I, I like that idea right off the hop, like mm-hmm. salmonella, legionella, one of these like kind of indolent things, but they shouldn't be, you should, they shouldn't take a month to diagnose. You know, we talked about malignancy right off the bat and, and again, like, eh, like it'd have to be hematologic, presumably, but we should have probably found something. He either should have found something in hospital or his bone marrow biopsy, or I don't know if he ever had flow of his blood, but there should have he been. He did. Something. It was negative. Yeah. Yeah. So there, the, that you know, so probably not. And then, is this an autoimmune or, or other inflammatory condition? It'd be hard to put put a uh, put a name to it. Like you know, yeah. So what would we be looking for on the liver biopsy? I, re- I realize that the liver biopsy people are kind of hanging there their last hopes on that, but it's hard for me to imagine what's going to be in there. My, my own feeling is that indolent infection is mm-hmm. the leading that sort of clubhouse leader at this point, but I don't, I don't really, I'm a little bit stuck here. I, I'm not, I'm not a better doctor than anyone else who's seen this person and I'm, I'm legit stuck. All right. Uh, so in the time before he comes back to follow up to the clinic, his uh, genetic testing comes back negative, the skin biopsy is negative, and the liver biopsy comes back and shows low bar and portal hepatitis with non-caseating granulomas. Fungal stains in AFB once again are negative and chronic non-specific hepatitis. And the comment in the pathology report is, quote, the cause for the patient's granulomatous hepatitis is unidentified. Sarcoid is possible, but TB can't be excluded. So this is how he shows up in clinic. Does this, does this help? What what are your thoughts now? We're ex- we're at exactly the same <laughs> point, and and you know, the, you're, so you're telling me that there's granulomas and they cannot be tested for tuberculosis or but, or for, for some kind of mycobacterial infection. So they're so they're negative. The AFB stains are negative. The fungal culture initially is is cooking, but eventually comes back negative. But the initial comment is that because the cultures are still cooking, the TB can't be excluded. And there's a PCR sent on those samples. Mm, I'm not sure. Oh God! So I mean, this is a really sticky problem, isn't it? Like, like let's say those are the two. I mean, honestly, Danny, do you think this could be sarcoid? I think it could. Yes, but I, this is someone. I, you know, I think it, Steph, if you and I were working on this, you have mentioned this in in earlier days of this podcast that in another country, like the person would be put on TB therapy, not like Mm -hmm. this case specifically, but like many other places you just treat for TB because it's so common. And this might be one where, where we actually discuss like initiating treatment for TB with a, you know, a short run up to initiation of steroids for Mm -hmm. sarcoid Mm -hmm. while we're waiting for things to come back because yes, it can take a long time, but we are literally 50, 50 between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be either potentially or neither or not. <laughs> oh, Barry, I didn't know that you could make it to the podcast tonight. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. It could be neither, but I think those are like, those are the two, my two leading diagnoses right now. And so I think I've, I've pretty much hit my treatment threshold for both, even mm-hmm. though I've met my diagnostic threshold kind of for neither, it'll be a bit of a diagnosis by excluding the other. And then the next part of the diagnosis will be response to standard therapy for the diagnosis we pick. So maybe we would jury rig some kind of treat for both situation. So that that's what would be on my mind at this point. Mm-hmm. Totally. So I think that that is very much in line with um, the internist who saw him, except they, so the diagnosis that he actually came up with was idiopathic granulomatous, granulomatous hepatitis with the differential diagnosis being sarcoid. Um, at this point, TB was felt to be less likely. However, there was talk about whether or not there would be a need to treat empirically empirically for TB, given that you were going to be starting this person on steroids. So I didn't know what idiopathic granulomatous hepatitis was, (laughs) but it is a thing. There is an up-to-date article on it, Uh, but, but it is essentially, as it sounds, sort of granulomatous hepatitis without any underlying cause and with the common things such as sarcoid, TB drugs, PBC, uh, other infections, all being ruled out. It it as I've been reading about it, I mean the line between that and sarcoid, it sounds blurry, and that the treatment for both of them is is essentially steroids um, with tapering, and then either you taper off steroids completely, or then you need an, another steroid sparing agent. 
Or if the patient gets worse, give them TB therapy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, it, it's crazy that it works for both. I mean, just, yeah. just, <laughs> you can, you know, just because you can give a disease a name does not mean that you've like created a new diagnostic category here. Like, yeah, it's idiopathic, you know, granulomas in the liver, I get it. <laughs> but that's not a thing. That's not a thing. That, you know, you, just because there's a chapter and up to date about it doesn't make it a thing. <laughs> Katie, can you give yeah. me a, can you give me your sense from your read of that literature? Because like definitely not an entity I'm I'm super familiar with, but this person did not exclusively present with hepatitis. In fact, the hepatitis component of it was actually somewhat Mild. modest. Like the bilirubin was fine. There was other stuff going on, and that yeah. includes pericarditis that was totally. well documented. So I I would say like well. I think that's a reasonable label for the hepatitis. I, I wonder if um, there's anything in the literature that says it can also cause the other components of his disease. What's your sense? Totally. So to me, that this this diagnosis fits very well with the majority of his symptoms during the hospital stay where I met him, which were these fevers, myalgias. I remember at the time, none of us thought anything really about his liver enzymes, but going back, his ALP and GGT were all consistently elevated for, for essentially six months until he started on steroids. There, there are two things, though, that I, that I can't explain by this. One is the atelectasis that Steph was was stuck on, which I'm, I have to explain just by being bed-bound essentially for most of four months because I have no other great explanation for it, which is very unsatisfying. Um, and the other is the pericarditis. And I looked through the literature to see if I could find any link between these things. And to my knowledge, there there is none. My best guess would be that perhaps there was some sort of viral illness that gave him pericarditis and that may have acted as a trigger for for this granulomatous hepatitis, but I, I don't have a better or more satisfying answer than that. I, I'm pretty satisfied. Like I, I think we're we're definitely I know Barry just looked up at the stars and smiled and nodded because I think Steph, we got into the ballpark. I and think so. I, I think if you saw if this person saw a different internist, they would call it you know, a, a sarcoid. And if they saw mm -hmm. a different internist, they would agree with uh, granulomatous hepatitis. Like that's, I, I think we're, we're circling it. I think we're kind of saying the same thing, especially when it comes to, there's no difference in how we're going to treat this person, right? No. No. So, so then it, for all intents and purposes, until a new symptom appears, we, we all, we're all on the same page, you know? Well, I think the, the wrinkle, I mean, I don't think that we're a hundred percent satisfied that this person does not have a mycobacterial infection, right? And and mm. and that's not that's not important in terms of what treatment we're going to offer right now, but it is really important in terms of the surveillance plan. So so when you're not sure that someone doesn't have a mycobacterial infection, then it means that you need to watch them on their therapy really closely. See, this is someone in whom I would I would have probably have them back pretty regularly. Um, that if they have any fevers or if their weight loss persists or if they you know anything if their liver enzymes go up then this is i I'd, I'd be pretty quick to maybe even offer them both simultaneously absolutely so so this guy was started so i think i think you both make make excellent points obviously uh so this guy was started on prednisone 40 milligrams a day and had remarkable improvement in his symptoms over sort of a very short period of time and then was followed up very closely sort of every every couple of weeks in the internal medicine clinic uh, with consultation from hepatology and did, did really well on this dose of prednisone and then had a lot of difficulty actually tapering off the prednisone. So that became sort of an issue over the ensuing years even um, to taper him off prednisone and find a steroid sparing agent. Uh, but And was the difficulty in tapering that his liver enzymes would go back up or uh, what would be his relapse? or His, his um, liver his enzymes would go up and he would have a recurrence of his symptoms, notably sort of the fevers would be the most prominent thing and the, the general malaise. Oh no, okay. Uh, so did, did he end up getting uh, like some sort of steroid sparing agent uh, tacked on there? He did. He tried infliximab, he tried methotrexate and had sort of poor reactions to both of them and ended up on MMF. Mm. And su success on MMF? Success on MMF. That's great. Yeah. He's still doing, doing well. Saw him, I saw him a few weeks ago. Well, not a few weeks ago now, a couple months ago in the clinic. Oh, wow. Yeah. What a case, Katie. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, that must have been one hell of a dictation. <laughs> you had like to do. seven pages long. <laughs> wow. Steph, what are your thoughts? I need a cigarette. <laughs> 
Don't I mean, so, so <laughs> my thoughts are the patient had sarcoid, right? Well, I mean, I think I think you can, and maybe I'm not smart enough to understand the distinction. Like in my mind, I'm kind of processing as as a version of sarcoid that that exclusively is in the liver. Um, but but like from what I read, so so I tried to do a bit of reading, and Danny, you can obviously correct me because you would know more about this. But hepatic sarcoid, I think I think findings of hepatic sarcoid are quite common, but but are quite rare to cause actual symptoms in, in terms of causing this like constellation. Um, so, so I think that's where this label of this idiopathic granulomatous hepatitis was thought to be more in keeping rather than, rather than exclusively hepatic sarcoid, which but he's got eyes, all over the body sarcoid. Yeah. It's got, uh, yeah. I, I wonder about like the, re- exactly like the reverse mm-hmm. perspective of like how much idiopathic granulomatous hepatitis has bone marrow involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. would be kind of like maybe or the other way to, yeah would be kind of like the other way to slice it and and so you know I, I maybe maybe we are like doing some like talmudic hasidic splitting of hairs here mm-hmm. but i i think if i was following i would probably lean towards labeling it as sarcoidosis but mm-hmm. but i'm not sure that that would you know he was on, he was on methotrexate and infliximab great treatments for sarcoid mm-hmm. he's on mmf other great treatment for sarcoid. Totally. So, you know, I, I, I think, uh, so, I, so whether we call it A or B, the end result is going to be the same. Totally. You know, Danny, when we rebrand the podcast, eventually the hair splitters, I think would be a really good. <laughs> yeah. Or, or maybe we should, maybe it should just be like, is it sarcoid? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, it'll, and it's just a yes or no at the end of the episode. <laughs> it's sarcoid. So this one it would be, it's like, yes, yes, no on reply all. Uh, <laughs> it right. would be yes, yes for me. I, yes, it is sarcoid. I would be in the yes, it is sarcoid camp. I, I'd give it a yes. Yeah. Oh, that's yes, yes. What about you, Katie? I, I'm having trouble seeing the difference between the two. So I think I would happily call it sarcoid. Or maybe yes, yes, maybe. Yes, yes, maybe. Sure. <laughs> yes, it's like a, a yes, yes, sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, sure. awesome well katie thank you so much for uh um such a great case that was uh that that was quite a trip uh, yeah thank Um, you guys for playing along it's a long one (laughs) so uh thanks everyone for listening in this has been the saint paul's morning report podcast we are supported by the saint paul's hospital foundation as well as qxmd read we are produced by nikki thorpe from bronick consulting thanks everyone for listening take care Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.